0: Welcome to this bonus episode of Legal Tender Season 1. In our series, we told the story of Aubrey McClendon's life, death, and fallen fracking empire. Today, Chesapeake is a shell of the company it once was, and every day more questions pop up about whether certain companies, or even the industry writ large, is going to make it. In this episode, Bethany McLean and I discuss these ideas and where she believes the future of the industry is headed. We also get to know Aubrey the man a little better as well. Can fracking make money, do you think?
1: So I've become more of a skeptic than I was when my book came out. When my book came out, I would have said probably 60, 40, no. But I wasn't convinced. And I and I and I had a hard time taking a firm line for two reasons. One is that everybody who's tried to predict the history of energy or the history of fracking, even, or the future of fracking, I should say. Everyone who's tried to predict the future of fracking has been wrong, and they've usually been wrong by underestimating it. The shale revolution has, to date, been much more powerful than anybody would have expected, and its skeptics, including David Einhorn in 2015, looked looked wrong for, 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 a, for a long time. Um, the other reason is that technology does reshape industry after industry, and it sounds compelling, at least on the surface, no no pun intended, to believe that you could bring new technology to fracking which would enable you to get more oil and gas out of the ground cheaper. And if you could reshape the whole financial firmament of this industry, why can't it make money in in, in, in the end? And those those were both pretty compelling arguments to me. I think I've become more skeptical. Um and, and it's odd because, again, these two narratives just completely diverge. I've become more skeptical, even as America has become the world's biggest oil producer once again, for the first time since the 1970s, eclipsing both Russia and Saudi Arabia. And it's due to fracking. I mean, this is this is stunning. And so there's this narrative of American shale as this dominant force in world oil. And in fact, it's a little bit frightening because a lot of the growth in global supply is supposed to come from fracking and Big oil companies have invested less and less in the kind of big long-term projects, you know, the big deep sea drilling project and the, you know, big project in the wilds of wherever, um, because they've looked at fracking and said, oh, well, this is where this is where growth in oil supply is going to is going to is, is going to come from, um, and and so the, the stakes are really really high. There's a lot resting on whether fracking can can continue to deliver or not. But the Wall Street Journal in particular has been doing some good investigative work, and I've been back to Texas a few times, and <laughs> people have pointed out to me that um, that that there's a lot of evidence that these much-type technological mir- miracles aren't coming to pass. And so – Part of the promise of technology was that you could pack wells more closely together and then you could get more oil out more cheaply because you wouldn't have to move the drilling equipment um, and that would cut down the expense. It turns out if you pack wells really closely together – that that they end up sort of um, infecting each other, and you get less oil rather rather than more. Um, it looks like wells have been a lot less productive than they'd prom- than executives had promised investors. So instead of over time getting more oil out of these wells than you would have expected, you've actually gotten less. So it's it's, it's, it's it's pretty unclear um, what the future holds. And investors, at the same time, it was starting as I finished my book, investors were getting a lot more skeptical. They were saying, forget about these, these, these stock prices based on production growth. We want to see profits. Can you generate profits? And so there's been this immense pressure put on companies to show that they can generate free cash flow. And thus far they haven't. So there was always this argument that well, if we just, you know, tame back the growth a little bit, of course we can produce free cash flow if we have to. It's less and less clear that they can, even even when they have to. And so investors are losing faith and they're no longer putting willing to put money in into shale companies. And to me this is almost it's not so much a question of financial collapse, it's almost an existential question because if investors stop putting money into shale and the Ponzi scheme, in essence, comes to an end, doesn't even matter if they're bankruptcies. What matters is what's what's the real level, what's the sustainable level of American oil production. And if it's not as much as people are counting on, what does that mean for oil prices? And at least for the foreseeable future, a lot of our economy depends on oil prices, right? I mean, there's renewables are going to replace oil at some point, but nobody knows when that point is. And so I think, it's, I think it's a really scary question hovering over the next decade.
0: What are the lessons that we can learn from the McClendon saga, from the Chesapeake story, from the whole fracking story in general?
1: Well, I think there's a positive lesson you can learn about it, which is how entrepreneurship really can reshape something. I mean, the story of the American Shale Revolution is the story of entrepreneurs who did things that people didn't believe were possible. And in McClendon's case of someone with such a forceful personality that he was able to sell investors around the world on the idea that they should put billions of dollars into the ability of U.S. entrepreneurs to extract oil and gas from places in the ground that no one thought you could you could get oil and gas and at a time in our markets where people didn't care about about oil and gas and so it's incredible what force of personality and belief can 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 accomplish so that's i guess on the positive side i guess on the cautionary side you can take away from it um, you can take away from it a lesson about the incredible length of time for which narrative can prevail over numbers because the story of the shale revolution has been so compelling and something that so many people in power wanted to believe, that America could again be resurgent and could be the world's leading producer of oil, and it makes us feel so big we can pound our chests once again. And yet it's all built on this incredibly unsustainable financial foundation. And so I think it's 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 in the end a story of how these grand national narratives can be constructed on the back of something that's essentially a fallacy.
0: I guess this should bring us to a pretty important point: what happens if this entire thing fails? What happens if the entire fracking thesis turns out to be impossible, whereas no free cash flow will happen? Ever. Ever.
1: Yeah. So I think it's different for oil and for natural gas. So fracking, they're, they're very, very different. Fracking started with natural gas. And even though nat- natural gas prices have remained incredibly low, that natural gas frackers have become closer and closer to being profitable. And there's an argument it wouldn't take much for that to work. Even skeptics like David Einhorn um, argue that natural gas is much closer to working than, than oil is. Oil and natural gas are also really different because no one disputes that America has an immense supply of really cheap natural gas relative to the rest of the world, um, which the great irony there is that McClendon looks to be right when he was pushing natural gas as the smart um, way for america to have uh, to have energy independence he was he was actually right about that and that's putting aside the environmental concerns about about natural gas which are which are a different and important part of the story but at least from a from a cost perspective how much it costs to get this stuff out of the ground and how much of it there is natural gas is is real There are many more questions around oil, both about whether it can ever be financially sustainable and about how much of it we actually have, how much we can actually get out of the ground at at prices that make any sense um, economically. And I worry if it all comes to a halt, if fracking can't deliver the immense growth that it's supposed to, what happens to oil prices? especially given all these billions, multi-billion dollar projects that have been put on hold because everybody thinks, oh, we can just frack. If US, If the U.S. shale revolution can't deliver the growth that it was supposed to, I don't see how oil prices don't go much higher.
0: Which could save some frackers.
1: <laughs> Which the great irony is that that could end up making, making fracking more economically sustainable, except... There's there's an argument that it, because fracking there's a huge percentage of fracking costs that are pro-cyclical, meaning even as prices go higher, the reason the industry didn't make money when prices were much higher is because service costs go up dramatically too. When costs are falling and people aren't drilling, the service costs, which are a huge portion of the cost of drilling a well, get cut to the bone. As soon as prices start to soar and people become busy again, and drills rigs cost much more to rent, service costs much more, and so the the, the profits it's it's not a um, it's not a linear equation.
0: And so, say that a lot of these companies go out of business, and and some of these things happen. What does that mean for the American economy? Would this cause, would this cause carnage um, on a on a scale of a recession type thing, or would this, you know, what, what would the kind of macroeconomic reverberations be?
1: I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how big a percentage of the economy fracking is. It would do a lot of damage to places that it would do a lot of damage to specific localities like Texas, like um, North Dakota. Um, the damage would be the damage would be huge. Um, how much that would ripple through the national economy, I, I I don't know. That might that might be an interesting question. But yeah. but there was the New York Times actually did a piece. Um, sometime this year, but it pointed out that in 2015, 2016, one reason our economy hasn't felt better is because there were these mini local recessions. And part of that was caused by what happened with fracking in 2015, 2016, when everybody thought it was going away, that that caused these, that we have a very different economy now, thanks to fracking than than we thought we did, because we're no longer, the United States is no longer an economy that automatically benefits from lower oil prices the way we were until the advent of fracking, now lo- lower oil prices can crush regions that are dependent on fracking for their economic growth, like Texas and North Dakota. And so the economy is, thanks to fracking, the economy is um, much more complicated than it was.
0: So right now we have a lot of uh, fracking companies that are still plugging away, and the you know the reports are starting to come in uh, from the journal, as, as you're saying, about how maybe the profits... Uh, And the the predictions of the short sellers that they had made before, like Jim Chanos and and David Einhorn, uh, look like they have some potential to be true. What are the types of things that we should be looking um, to follow this story going forward?
1: So – to me, the biggest question is, if the industry had to live on the cash flow it produces and has to end what is essentially a Ponzi scheme, which is raising fresh money in order to finance production, if the industry can only reinvest its own profits, what's the real level of production? How much oil and gas can we can we actually produce? And that, to me, is a really important question. Um, even private equity investors, people who would put their money into this, um, one of them, one prominent guy said to me that if companies had had to live within cash flow, if they hadn't been able to keep raising these immense gobs of capital from outsiders, that the shale revolution would have grown at you know a quarter to half the clip that it, that it, that it actually did. And so that's, that's the big question to me. And I guess you could even ask the question one level d- deeper. Can these companies even produce free cash flow? Can they be profitable? Does, does, does the business work at all, even if it's shrinking?
0: So if that money faucet were to be cut off, if somehow, um, this is obviously not going to happen, if the Federal Reserve, for example, would have uh, rates back what they were in the 90s, right. what would that mean? If, let's say that, that, that spigot was completely shut off. Would that leave only EOG left?
1: Right now, it would not leave very many companies left at all unless there's some sort of underlying transformation in their business model. but it would be it would be very difficult for most of the industry to survive if rates were a lot higher and they could no longer raise fresh capital. I think you have a much, much smaller American shale industry
0: so amidst all of this, and uh, maybe especially as he's as he's died, um, you know, you talked about how the other side of things, about the sort of the, the resentment towards him, is obviously tempered by the fact that he is dead. But there is overwhelmingly this, this current of sympathy through his whole narrative. Why does he seem sympathetic after all of the disastrous deals and kind of wake of destruction that he's left behind?
1: I think he's sympathetic for a couple of reasons. I think one is because he was a really likable man. So his charisma was a deep charisma. It wasn't a skin deep charisma. He wasn't the guy in the flashy suit who impresses you and then you realize it's all shallow and it's all a con. Aubrey's charisma went to his core. He was really, really brilliant and he really, really cared and he really wanted to to, to, to build something, he was absolutely to his core a believer, um, and he tra- he transformed an industry. I think he wasn't the technological pioneer, but you can look back on what he did to convince investors to put billions of dollars into American shale. And I think you can make an argument that the shale revolution would be a lot smaller if, Mc- if McClendon hadn't been its chief evangelist, because every investor he convinced about the beauty and the glory of American shale, maybe they didn't put their money in Chesapeake, but they put their money in something else, right? So you can argue this whole revolution would have been a lot smaller um, um, if it weren't for him. And for better or worse, it transformed the world. And I always have a sneaking suspicion for anybody who sets out to do something huge that is that is that is going to change the world this banker who knew mcclendon well said to me the world moves when people who like risk take action and that and that's true and you, you want those people even if sometimes their stories end up as tragedies or end up being a, a, a trail of wreckage what our world would be a lot less interesting if we didn't have those characters in it right
0: they bring the spice
1: They bring the spice, right. And they bring the movement. They're the ones who who change things.
0: Who would play Aubrey McClendon in a movie?
1: Oh, boy, you guys might be better about that than I am. I don't know, Dennis Quaid? Um, Who else would be a good person to play Aubrey McClendon? I think Brad Pitt would actually be a pretty fantastic Aubrey McClendon. I I I could see him pulling that off really well. In the end, I see the McClendon story almost as an updated version of Dallas, right, with these immense ramifications for the for the for the global economy, but but it's 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 serious and it's it's pretty straightforward in the end. I mean, it's a pretty straight straightforward narrative of a incredible entrepreneur with a crazy, boundless appetite for risk who tried to change the world in ways that some of us might argue are good and some of us might argue are really really bad and he just seemed to have no bounds on his on his appetite for risk or on his uh, own appetite for the for the good life but it's a pretty straightforward story
0: thank you for listening to legal tender from yahoo finance If you enjoyed this series, please share it and leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Our next season will be out soon. Until then, thank you for listening.